You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Technological change, new ideas about teaching and learning, and evolving workforce needs are driving transformative change in the education sector from grade school to grad school. On Thursday, January 17th, the Washington Post hosted a gathering of leading educators and innovators. In this segment, education leaders talk about the disruption of traditional models of teaching and how we approach creating, reforming, and funding education in the U.S., from K-12 classrooms to university lecture halls. Let's listen. Hi, good afternoon. I'm Karen Tumulty, and I am a columnist here at the Washington Post. And we are very pleased and very honored to have such a great panel of uh, educators and beyond educators with us today um, to talk about, about innovation and also the, the sort of um, the intersection of government and education. Um, and so here we have, to my far left, the president of Bates College, Clayton Spencer, uh, Dr. Wayne Frederick, the president of Howard University. And when he says doctor, it's not PhD doctor, it's A doctor, doctor. <laughs> and uh, Donna Shalala, who has been the chancellor or president of three major universities, uh, Hunter College, the University of Wisconsin, and the University in Miami. Um, and is now a probably the most overqualified freshman congresswoman in history, uh, having been HHS secretary as well. And so, Congresswoman Shalala, I've got to sort of get off our main topic here and just get to the news. How do we get out of this shutdown? Yep. <laughs> Uh, those three university presidencies don't qualify me to answer that question. <laughs> um, let me say a couple of things. First of all, Bill Clinton said that I was the most qualified person to serve in Congress since John Quincy Adams. <laughs> um, Grown-ups have to step up, uh, particularly on the Senate side, and say enough is enough. As you know, during the uh, shutdown that we had during the Clinton administration, where the whole government was shut down, it was Bob Dole, Senator Dole, the majority leader, who stepped up and said, enough is enough. Uh, everybody's going back to work. Um, this is tragic. And what scares me is that we're using policy differences to hurt people, to close down the government. and. I don't know of any country in the world that when they have policy differences, they close down the government. I couldn't think of one, and I, I looked as, as far as I could. We need rules that prevent this kind of thing, perhaps a continuing resu uh, resolution that automatically cuts in when you can't agree. Um, but we cannot go through this again ever again. It is going to end. Um, at some point, the Senate will step up right now. Um, the Senate has said very clearly uh, that they will not do anything the president won't sign. So what we did in the House, now that we have the majority, is we passed all the Senate appropriations bills. We didn't pass the House appropriations bills. We took their bills that they passed last year and we passed them word for word and sent them over to the Senate. So there would be no disagreement between us about what it would take to open up the government and to start negotiations uh, about 
a smart strategy for um, uh, to um, to protect our borders because we believe in that. So, it's at the end of the day, it's going to have to be the Senate. And so, well, if it, so, what what should Speaker Pelosi be doing right now? Well, right now she's doing what she can do. She's trying to put pressure. Um, she's trying to make it very clear what the outlines of a deal we think uh, would be reasonable. Uh, she's reassuring the public that we're in favor of strong borders. Um, and uh, she's saying to the Senate leadership, we're ready to go. Well, uh, first of all, the other thing I should have mentioned is that we really do want you to be part of our conversation. So if you have any questions, please uh, send them to me. They will get to me here uh, with hashtag post live. Um, so, Dr. Frederick, uh, I'd like to sort you of. You want to answer that question? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm definitely not qualified right. to answer that. Well, I slept at the Holiday Inn last night, though. So. Right. But, but so. You know, the very first official visit to a campus that, that Betsy DeVos did when she became education secretary was to Howard. Uh, and you took some criticism, I think, uh, on your own campus. And by the way, props to you for, you know, allowing sort of free expression on campuses because you have been amazing in, in doing that at Howard. But so you took some flack for Betsy DeVos coming to campus. About a month later, you are in the White House um, with a bunch of, of other historically black college leaders meeting with the president. It is, it is there, I think, that Betsy DeVos famously uh, de referred to HBCUs as uh, being pioneers of school choice. Um, so you, again, took a lot of flack for reaching out to the Trump administration. How's that relationship going now? You know, so a, a couple of things, I think, just to explain that particular circumstance. So, um, you know, Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education. Every Secretary of Education is an ex officio member of Howard's board. Um, Howard was founded and started with a charter uh, by Congress signed by the 17th President of the United States, um, President Johnson. So with that in mind, uh, Secretary of Education often, the Secretaries of Education often invite um, themselves to the campus or are invited by us, and we obviously want them on the campus. I, I think that's a, a good thing. Uh, she was confirmed at uh, 12 o'clock on a Tuesday, and um, I got a call that she wanted to speak to me at 4.30 p.m. that afternoon, and she informed me that she wanted to come on Thursday morning. So. Very quick turnaround. She did want to come to our campus as the first um, visit, and I, you know I think it was the right thing to do. I've had a lot of interaction with her since then. I would do a couple of things differently. Uh, one of which is probably consult with a broader swath of the campus, um, especially students in particular, uh, to also educate them about why I, I think it was important. I've, I've had a lot of interaction with her. I think she's been a good listener. Um, I do disagree with some of the policies, but even in those circumstances, she has not been uh, shut off to, you know, uh, getting uh, feedback on, on what's going on. On the, I, I think just to explain on the president's side, um, if you look at that picture very carefully, you would notice that I'm not in the picture. It, it, it was a photo op, um, and I felt strongly about the fact that we shouldn't really participate in a photo op. 
however, all of the senior administrators who advised the president met with the historically black colleges and universities, and, and that in and of itself um, was historic and, and unprecedented. Uh, I have been in Howard's administration the entire time uh, that President Obama was, um, you know, in office, and we've enjoyed a very good relationship as well. But I don't think, as a group, uh, the historically black colleges and universities had necessarily that access and, and that um, opportunity to talk. And the last thing I would say is the situation that we find ourselves in is very difficult. The 105 HBCUs right now are under a significant pressure. And every year that I have been president, one or two have closed. And I don't see that happening unabated unless something dramatically changes. And we're still, although we represent only 4% of the higher ed institutions in this country, we're still responsible for 35% of the African Americans who get bachelor's degrees in STEM disciplines. So the outsized role that we play in terms of diversifying the workforce in this country has really been neglected for some time. And so, you know, it's one of those situations where I think you're trying to make sure that you have access and you can get the assistance you need and make the case wherever that is. And I think like our civil rights leaders, we want to be at the table. You know, Martin Luther King would go to the White House even though he probably did not think it was welcoming. And what I think we have to do is to get to the table, look at the menu, um, probably push the plate back in if we don't like mm -hmm. what we see, but at least we could come back out and tell our constituents, you know, what they serve in isn't you know, what we need and, and make an argument to get them to serve something different. So we, we, I think we have to continue some type of dialogue. And you really do honestly feel like there is an open line of communication between you and Betsy DeVos and this administration? In, in the Department of Education and with the Secretary, I, I have to say yes, absolutely. I, 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 and that has been a refreshing. Now, with Secretary Duncan, um, we also had good access as well. Let me just be clear about that as well. Mm -hmm. But, but it's, it's definitely not a closed-off circumstance. I, I, I have the opportunity to make my case around my federal appropriation and several other things as well. Um, so, President, President Clayton, one of the things we really want to talk about, uh, President Spencer, what am I saying here? This is what you get for having two last names. Two last names, names right. <laughs> Sorry. Spencer. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh, cutting-edge innovation in colleges, and there, there is a phrase that you have often used, uh, purposeful work. And as the mother of a senior at a liberal arts college, I, I hear the work part and I immediately think, oh, jobs. Uh, but th there's something that you said that I, I read that, that struck me, that this is a much more than finding a job. You said work is really fundamental to who you are and who you will become. Um, could you talk a little, what exactly does purposeful work mean? So purposeful work first is now a program at Bates. Where you teach even things like being a doula, right? It's, uh, it's, we don't teach that. Uh, um, it's yeah. not, I mean, Bates is a very classic liberal arts uh -huh. college, but we recognize and embrace the fact that college has always been about preparing students for life and work. And we shouldn't be prissy about that and assume that you teach them a liberal arts education, you claim they learn critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, they do learn all those things, and then just tell them, good luck. It's a huge investment for families. It's a huge investment for students themselves of their talent and their financial investment. And they need to know 
how to animate what they learn in the liberal arts to be effective actors in the world. And college has always been about that. So on one hand, this is innovative. On the other hand, it's deeply what college and the liberal arts education has always been about. So the terms, why did we pick those terms? So number one, um, it's based on the thought that everyone in life is looking for a life that has meaning and that allows them to act in the world in a way that brings them meaning. Um, and work can be, it can be for money or not. It can be in the home, it can be in the workplace, et cetera. The important thing to know about purposeful work is it's not a kind of work. Purpose does not inhere, it's not do good or work. You can want to be a forest ranger, a ballet dancer, work for JP Morgan, you can do whatever you want. It's what aligns what your values are, what your interests are, with how you act in the world. So what we're doing with our students is helping them understand that it's that alignment they're after. How do they start to take courses that they're actually interested in? Don't run to economics because they think that's a proxy for getting a job if they don't have any interest in economics. So take that philosophy course and begin to understand your interests and then we have, so we have a curric curricular dimensions that are, um, that are infused in the liberal arts, and we also have a very practical internship program. I won't go into all of that now, but the purpose piece is what emerges. It's the alignment between your interests, what you do, what you learn to do well, and then um, how you act in the world. And the notion that, that you have a passion and then you have to go uh, impose that on the world or let it out. I mean, if you're Yo-Yo Ma or Leonardo da Vinci, that probably works. But for most people, passion is a byproduct of doing things and achieving mastery. So we work with students in very intentional ways to do that. We can come back to talk more about that. Right, it's less, less what you want to be when you grow up than who you want to be when you grow up, I guess. Is and it's also the intel inside. These kids are going to have seven, eight, nine jobs. And we've always said that the liberal arts is the most powerful and adaptable kind of education there is. Exactly. But then you need to make sure our students are aware of it and they use it as they move through the world and keep relearning and adapting. That's what it's going to take in this global, high-velocity change economy. So, Dr. Frederick, Howard has more has a more of its students applying more African Americans applying to med school from from Howard than than any other university uh, and and you know one of the things I think that distinguishes Howard is that you have a major medical institution right there that is really part of the core of the university's mission but even with those numbers as impressive as they are uh, we're still looking proportionally they're not where they should be how do how do we change that? Is this something that I mean? Is this STEM education in the early years? Is there something that colleges should be doing to to better prepare African Americans and other other minorities to to go into the medical field or what? Sure. So so it's multifactorial, and I think we have to have a, a, a pluripotent um, approach to fixing it. And just to put it in context, um, the country has a crisis, in my opinion. When you look at healthcare disparities and you look at outcomes for African Americans, they're drastically 
uh, well below the outcomes for the majority populations. And so that has a, it has a lot of um, impact on the communities that people live in. It has a lot of impact, I think, on the overall productivity of the country. And so I think it, it, everyone needs to be involved. In 1978, there were more African-American males in this country who applied to medical school than in 2014. Just think of the difference of what this country was in that 40-year span, and yet still, we are at a, a place where you have less African-American males even applying to medical school. And you're right, Howard sends more African-American applicants uh, to medical school than uh, any other institution in the country, which again is worrisome, because when you look at Howard University as a private institution, with 9,400 students and an endowment of $780 million, that is an outsized burden to have a private institution in the nation's capital doing that. So how do we fix that? And pipeline is an issue. Uh, we have a middle school on our campus focused on math and science. I think that's one of the solutions. We have to infuse the idea of college early. If you stop one of my middle school students on campus and you, or on the sidewalk uh, catching the bus and you ask them where they go to school, they'll tell you I go to Howard University. They won't say I go to Howard University's middle school. <laughs> and so they already have that form that, listen, this is normal, I'm gonna be back here or on another campus like this, and I think we have to push that. With respect to STEM education, and of course there's a lot of conversation in this country, we also have to recognize the gender gaps. I'm the proud father of a 14-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter. My 12-year-old daughter is very good at math. She would not join the math club despite being coaxed by several teachers. And when I went to speak to her about it, she basically said, listen, I don't like working with boys because they take over stuff they mess it up and then we have to fix it. <laughs> and so I, I, I think again, at a very early age, we also don't recognize how much our education system really takes an off-ramp for many students uh, as, because of gender and all these other issues as well. So I think we really have to look at our middle school, we have to look at the pipeline. And then the last thing I would say is we have to invest as a country, both government and private, in making sure that we take away the barriers for those students' success. If you look at Silicon Valley and the numbers, they're very low. When I became the president, I approached Google and I said, listen, you guys come up with every reason why you don't hire my folks. You send a Google in residence professor to my campus. I said, let's try something different. I want a Howard West. I want my students to come out here and instead of you complaining about them not being able to code, you co-teach them with my faculty. That does two things. You can't complain that they're not prepared because you're responsible for teaching them. The second thing is they're getting a contemporary education and the faculty now can come back and change their curriculum so that it is as cutting edge as possible. They've now hired at least six of our um, students from that first cohort of 26 and they've hired another five in the Silicon Valley area. And now we've expanded that program so it's all year round, fall and spring. And I think innovations like that to break down these barriers are gonna be very necessary as we move forward. Well, and of course, education and healthcare is your, your two wheelhouses uh, <laughs> colliding here. Uh, I, I remember at one point talking to you during the, the healthcare reform efforts that led to the Affordable Care Act, and you were very passionate, for instance, about the role that nurses should play. So uh, we've talked about sort of preparing students to live up to their potential, but how should we be rethinking education to be turning out the, the kinds of skills and professionals that we need, especially now that we do have a, a healthcare system that is doesn't look like it used to? Well, I'm not 
you know, in nursing, there's a four-year program, and we've mm -hmm. actually transformed nursing uh, as part of the uh, report that I chaired for the Institute of uh, Medicine, where you have to get a four-year degree, really, to get a, a job and an advanced degree if you really want to practice with a broader uh, sweep. But it's not just nursing. When I think about that kind of preparation, I'm very wary about doing it. At, in some professions, you do it, like nursing. I'm very wary about doing it all at the undergraduate level. I always have been. Um, and so I've always worked with institutions, even when they wanted to do undergraduate business schools, to make sure they had the liberal arts, because frankly, we don't know what they need to know 10 years from now. But here's what I do know. Um, at the University of Miami, we started the Launchpad. This gives an opportunity for any student, not just in business or engineering, to start a business. So we have these serial freshman entrepreneurs. We want every student at the university to think about creating a job, not just about taking a job. That requires a different kind of thinking. You walk into the launch pad, which is in the student center, and you present your idea, and they'll help you put together a business plan. So it's the largest activity at the University of Miami. The vast majority of the students that walk in there and start businesses come from the arts and sciences. Yeah. And not as much, not engineering or business, hmm. But they're English majors and theater majors. They just have a good idea. And we've created hundreds of businesses over the years uh, because of that. But it's a different way of educating students, and it's understanding that it's not just the classroom activity. Lots of people have entrepreneurships in their business school. Mm -hmm. But it's a different way of getting the kids to think um, in a fresh way. Look, I was in junior achievement as a kid, and. I created four or five businesses mm -hmm. shape the way I think about American business. So President Spitzer, how do you look at this sort of getting, getting students, especially in the liberal arts, to sort of think kind of creatively and entrepreneurially, but also to make sure you still do have those, those sets of practical skills that are going to turn your idea into something that's real? So. One of the ways we do it at Bates, we have a short term at the end of our two regular semesters that's about, if it's five weeks, you take one course that's intensive. And we have brought in, this is a new innovation, brought in practitioners to teach those courses. So we have uh, graphic designers, music producers, filmmakers, entrepreneurship, a business competition, all of those things that are in this kind of more experimental zone of that one one month, while during the regular semester, they're being history, philosophy, economics majors, they're learning critical thinking, research, review. Um, so that's one of the important ways we do it. The other way is through a really well-designed internship program. And I'd like to reference what um, Dr. Frederick said. We have um, one of the animating principles of purposeful work is that we need to fill our equity promise to students. So long ago, American higher education began reaching out more broadly, bringing in more students, creating more diverse student bodies. Then it occurred to us about in the 90s that we better support them for academic success. But then if you're just relying on kids to use mom and dad and their professional networks to get an internship, you are leaving all this fantastic talent on the table. 
So one of the animating features of purpose work is what I call the third leg of the equity promise. We let you in, we help you succeed, and then we're gonna help you bridge to the world of work. And we have, we spend $350,000 a year supporting students in internships. Um, we have a set of core employers like the Google model where there's a pre-existing relationship right. between us. And we work very hard to make sure that our Students of color, first-gen students are overrepresented in those cohorts. You know, you're talking to university people, though, um, from fairly elite institutions. We've got to remember we need, need also to provide apprenticeships and, and, and alternative ways of getting into the workforce. Um, and those kinds of investments we're just starting to make and just starting to think about. Um, I had a cousin that spent two years in college. He was a brilliant student. He hated it. Came to me and said, I think I can get an apprenticeship um, as an electrician. And he did. It took six years. It was wow. a long apprenticeship. Wow. He's making a lot of money now yeah. and is very happy and is very passionate about what he's doing. But he's also a great reader because he, yeah. he spent a couple of years um, in college. But we need alternative tracks as well, but what we don't need to do is to funnel minority students into those. Uh, we still have a fundamental equity problem in this country, and all of us are working on that. Right. Well, if we just have a little bit of time left, and I, I wanted to ask one question that I think is top of mind to everyone who has a student, which, whether they're a kindergartner or in postgrad, and you coming from Florida, what should we be doing to make our schools safer? Oh, my heavens. Um, we can start by identifying early on um, young people who have real challenges. And, and I mean by that intervening early on. If you look at what the Scandinavian countries do, they'll identify a child that may have behavioral problems in kindergarten or in the first grade and then they'll assign someone that sticks with them and their family, working with them right through. If you look at Parkland, at every stage of that man's life, a teacher tried to intervene to get him into some kind of services, but there were no seamless services. And so it was hit and miss, and at the end of the day, we got a seriously deranged human being who caused unbelievable uh, damage. So, Mental health is one piece. We've got to get rid of the guns. Yeah. No other country on earth has uh, assault weapons, um, doesn't have background checks, makes it easy to buy a gun. So um, we're going to do a background check bill on the House side, and I'm sure that we're going to pass it. I hope we get back to the assault weapons ban. I helped negotiate that in 94, uh, and we banned assault weapons, but we just have too many guns. We do not need to get rid of the Second Amendment. We can simultaneously manage and reduce the number of guns and who has access to guns and not mess around with hunters. And you, you come from a school in an urban setting, you come from a school not in, what, what keeps you awake at night on this question of school safety? So I think we all have to be smart about the active shooter scenario, the natural disaster scenarios that are just happening, happening with greater frequency. I worry about that stuff and we drill for it. You can, I think, never be prepared, but we spend a lot of time on a variety of risk management topics. 
So I'm, I'm going to go in a completely different direction because they have covered exactly what I would have said if, if I went first. So I'm going to tell you something totally different. I think that one of the things that we do not do and we've become very shy and apprehensive about talking about is our humanity. We, we, we are almost hesitant to bring up the issue of being nice, of intervening and giving some humanness to what we do, and that worries me. So the students who come, they're bright, they, they are ambitious, they can create jobs, but I still think our education system is a key part of where we need to stop and say there is a high price a high price and value to being nice to someone. And the well, come up I, to Congress. And the reason why I double down on that is in the social media age, we hide behind our devices and say things, right? We, we have a country now that has normalized tweeting, which obviously, uh, you know, the, the president does, but we've right. all kind of normalized it and we're doing the same things and no one is intervening. So, as you mentioned, sometimes we see someone having trouble. We, we don't have good mental health care services. I agree with all that, but who goes out of the way to say, let me be the one to intervene, or let me be the one to just give somebody a kind word on that day that probably makes a difference? You know, I can't think of a better way to close than just reminding people that decency is, uh, is, is something that, that we need to be instilling in our young people as well. So thank you all very much for, thank you. for being with Welcome. us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.